all of us at every level get this question from multiple guys every year. You know, what do I have to do to play more? And I think you have to be really careful with that one because I think with all good intentions, what we really give guys is the areas they need to improve. Well, your defense has got to be better. You got to shoot the ball better. Okay, now the guy starts doing that. Is he going to play more? Well, maybe not because the true answer is you got to be better than that guy who's playing ahead of you. Welcome to Slapping Glass, where we explore basketball's best ideas, strategies, and coaches from around the world. Today, we're excited to welcome former NBA head coach, Stan Van Gundy. Coach Van Gundy is here today to discuss the balance of control versus freedom in half-court offense, using the post in the modern game, and we talk flex offense and 1-3-1 zones during the always fun start, sub, or sit. A big thank you to the coaches and staffs from around the world who have joined SG Plus this summer. Your support helps us continue to provide the highest quality content we can. Coaches can now receive full access to SG Plus for less than $30 a month with our new monthly option. Check out slappingglass.com for more information today. And now, please enjoy our conversation with Coach Stan Van Gundy. Our coach wanted to start with this idea of control and basically the level of talent versus the amount of control or freedom you know, to give players on the floor. And I know that you know, you've had a long career starting in the college game and then moving to the NBA. And so interested to hear your thoughts as you've gone through your career, how much or how little control you think about giving players, especially early on in the season, say in a preseason when you're building your team. I think that, you know, clearly the more skilled people are, the easier it is to give them more freedom on the floor. But it really comes down to decision making. You know, are they able to make decisions? And I do think you have to be careful. I think that, you know, at times the thought is I don't have great decision makers. My guys aren't really skilled. So I'm going to be really, really structured. The problem with that becomes that if you're saying, like, I have to get the ball from point A to point B to run an offense, and I'm not real skilled, well, that's hard to do. Like, I can do that with NBA guys. You really can. I mean, we're going to go point A to point B to point C, and they'll get open, and they'll be able to make the plays. That's hard to do with guys who aren't as skilled, aren't as talented. And so I think the fine line is you have to give them the freedom to say, all right, this isn't open. I can make the play over here, okay? And to be able to read defense and play. But I think if they're not highly skilled, you want to limit the number of decisions they have on the floor. You certainly don't want to just roll the ball out and let them play any way they want. I mean, but I do think you have to be able to say, okay, if we make the pass to the wing, here's what we're doing. If we go guard to guard, here's what we're doing. If we hit the high post, here's what we're doing. So that I come down as, say, a guard, and this is personal to me because I never had great quickness playing, that I've got three options of where I can go with the ball. You can't take everything away on me. You know, I, you have to have some level of freedom, but giving guys too much. I think makes it the game hard on them. Listen, players will always say this, right? Players will always want more freedom. And with some guys, I think it really helps them. And with some guys, I think you're really doing them a disservice because you're giving them the freedom to make more decisions than they're capable of. And your job as a coach, or one of your jobs anyway, is to maximize everybody's ability. And giving them freedom. Players think that's what maximizes their ability most of the time, but it doesn't. You mentioned some players, you can give them a lot of freedom, but since it's a team game, does the level of freedom or control have to be universal? Or if you give this guy, I can give more freedom, 
But if he's giving complete freedom, can the other four guys react to what he's doing? No, I, I think guys can be different, but you bring up a great point. If you have, say, a great point guard and you want to give him freedom, you have to be pretty defined with the other guys in terms of where their spacing is, what kind of movement you want off the ball, things like that. But look, I, I think when we're building a team at any level, guys have to understand. And I think it's our job as a coach to make them understand everybody's not the same. And so we can't develop the game where it's equal opportunity and everybody's treated the same because again, our job is to try to maximize everybody's abilities. And for a really good guard, I think having a lot of freedom, you know, say running a high pick and roll or just coming down and beating his guy off the dribble is great. It's essential. But there's other guys, if they start putting the ball on the floor more than one or two dribbles, they're not going to be very good. And, and so you help them by limiting them. And I think the idea is everybody's job is essential to our success as a team. We have to understand that. We have to respect everybody's role and abilities, but we have to know each other too. And as a coach and even as a teammate, I try to put my players in the most advantageous positions and keep them out of bad positions. And I think we have to understand all that as a team. And, and I think if you treated everybody the same in terms of the amount of freedom you give them, you'd be inhibiting some guys too much and giving some guys too much freedom. You know, you look at the NBA now, and I'm not saying I like this, but it seems like on most teams now, there's two guys' jobs who are to stand in the corner. That's basically what they yeah. do. You know, they stand in the corner, they shoot threes, maybe one dribble and attack the rim, maybe occasionally a back cut, but their role is limited. And I don't think that's great basketball to watch. I understand that. But I think there are some guys who've been able to thrive in the NBA because, you know, they've got a very specific skill set. And then at the other end of the floor, you know, they're capable of defending and by not asking them to do a lot of things they can't do, they're able to become very effective players. Coach, especially kind of going back, maybe thinking about your college years. And I know like NBA, for the most part, guys come in and they're obviously skilled to get to that level to a certain extent. But guys maybe that are younger don't quite have the skill set yet. Uh, and you mentioned trying to give them ways that they can be successful early on. Going back to those years of a general philosophy of you know, trying to figure out what they can and can't do early on in the season, sort of giving them like a blank page to see what they can do for a while and then chunking their role down or starting with a more defined role and then slowly kind of opening it up as they develop as a young player. I think that's interesting. That's a really interesting question. And, and again, I think every situation is different. You know, you may go into your preseason practices and say, wow, that kid's different than he was last year. He's obviously worked on some things. And then there's other guys where, you know, you go into the same preseason practice and he looks like exactly the same guy he was before. So you stick him in that same role and try to build his skills over time and his ability to take on more over time. So I don't think you can just have one approach to it. My last question kind of on this is just your early season conversations with players that you're going to give lesser roles, how would you kind of go about saying, hey, we want to use you, but here's sort of the ways that we envision it and here's going to be your role so that you have success? How would you kind of try to approach those conversations? Well, look, I think, first of all, you come at it from a positive standpoint, right? I mean, it's not sitting down and saying, hey, look, you can't do this. You can't do this. You can't do this. It's Again, it starts with there are no lesser roles. Everything is really important. Everybody's role is essential for us having success. That does not mean that everybody has the same role. And so I think you sit down and say, look, I think you're great at this, this, and this. And so we're going to use you this way. Now, certainly you're going to have a lot of guys, most guys, who want something else, something different. And then I think you have to talk to them. This is what's best for our team. Can you put the ball on the floor maybe more than we're using you in our system? 
Can you run more pick and roll? Maybe. But I think we're better off running pick and rolls with our point guard and you playing off the ball. I think that's what's best for our team. And so we're going to play you in this role. And I do think you have to be a little careful about over-promising. You know, I mean, I think a lot of times you try to qualify it for guys and saying, you know, hey, as the season goes on, maybe we'll give you more and more. And that doesn't happen, you know. So I'm not really a big fan of over-promising things or trying to placate people into something that's never going to materialize. You know, it's like, to me, the same question that all of us at every level get this question from multiple guys every year. You know, what do I have to do to play more? What do I have to do to play more? How do I get more playing time? And I think you have to be really careful with that one, because I think with all good intentions, what we really give guys is the areas they need to improve. Well, your defense has got to be better. You got to shoot the ball better. Okay. Now the guy starts doing that. Is he going to play more? Well, maybe not, because the true answer is you got to be better than that guy who's playing ahead of you. That's the bottom line. And that's what I say to people all the time. You know, these are the areas you need to work on to give yourself a chance to be trusted more by a head coach. But the reality of the situation is you're not going to play. I'll give you one that I think. So this year, coaching in New Orleans, we had a good Italian player as a four-man, Nico Melli. And he became very, very frustrated because we weren't playing much. And he's a good player. But obviously, Zion Williamson ahead of him is going to take 35 to 36 minutes a night. Well, we didn't feel like there were enough minutes there. We were resting Zion like two, three minutes at a time. I think it's hard for anybody to play like that you know, two, three minutes at a time. So what we did instead was we played Josh Hart and he backed up both the three and the four spots. So there was just a three-man rotation there. So when I got that question from Nico Melli, I said, you know what, Nico, as long as everybody's healthy, I really don't know if you can get more time. It's nothing about the way you're playing. It's this is why we're doing it this way. Now, clearly, he didn't like that situation, but I wasn't lying to him. You know, I wasn't saying, well, hey, Nico, you need to shoot the ball better or you're deep. No, no. You know, you do need to shoot the ball better. But <laughs> the bottom line is this is the situation. Here's where we are. I can't play you backing up the three and the four. We didn't feel like we could play he and Zion together. And so you're sort of stuck. I make that point to just say, like, I think we do have to be careful about the way we talk to players. I don't think guys lie to players. I don't. But I think when we're saying, hey, you know, you need to defend better. You need to handle the ball better. They do need to do that. But there is a chance that even with that, they're not going to play more because they're not going to be better than that guy ahead of them. You know, when I was in Miami as an assistant coach, Tim Hardaway was our starting point guard. He was a first team all NBA guy. We had a really good backup, uh, John Crotty, who's outstanding, now doing TV for the Heat, but a really, really good player, hardworking guy in the whole thing. And he'd go in and he'd play really well, and then he would play his minutes and he would come out. And I remember he'd come to the bench. He's a competitive guy and a hell of a player. And why the hell am I coming out of the game, he'd say to me. I said, because that's Tim Hardaway. You know, that's Tim Hardaway. (laughs) We have to be careful of that because that's the answer in a lot of cases, you know, and I think that goes to players' roles too because, yeah, maybe you can do more than we're letting you do. You know, maybe you can break guys down off the dribble more than we're allowing you to do. But you know what? This guy here can do that even better than you. So we're going to go to him and you're going to stand over here and spot up. Players aren't necessarily going to like that but it maximizes team performance. Coach, my follow-up on that is how, I guess, looking back at your college career, did you manage that when you had to be frank with these guys that we need you to improve, but the minutes don't necessarily come, but obviously they're not professional. You know, How did you go about then keeping that player engaged and continuing to help the team and not cause dissension? 
so my last year in college coaching was a 94-95 season. So as you guys know better than I do, things have changed a lot in the last 26 years. And so to be quite honest, that was a big part of it. I mean, back then, you know, in college, players like younger players would come in and if they weren't playing right away, they would keep working at it and then, you know, work for their chance to play later. Now, if you're not playing in game one, you're out of there, you're transferring, you're gone. There was also, I think, high school and college level back then, both to the players and maybe more importantly to the people around the players, family and stuff, there was a real value in just being a part of a team and playing your role. Those things were valued. Now it's become, in most cases, a very, very selfish thing. You know, I go back to the John F. Kennedy line, you know, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. We've lost that in our society, and basketball is simply a microcosm of that. It's now, as these kids come up, unfortunately, to all the people around them, it's not what can you do for the team, it's what can the team do for you, and that's how it's framed. So what I'm saying to you is, I don't know if what I did then would work whatsoever now, because it is just a different time. I mean. It was easy back then. I mean, I started coaching as an assistant in college in 1981 and then went 14 years. And back then, I didn't think it was that hard to sell sacrifice for the good of the team, willing to accept any role. And and even now, like I talk about it a lot with guys, like there might be one guy on a team, on any team at any level who has the role that they want. I mean, really. And so... But to be successful, what you need is everybody playing the role they're given as well as they can, not the role that they want. But that's a harder sell now. I don't care if it's college level, high school level, NBA level. It's a harder sell now. We've become a more individualistic society. When I was coming up, I mean, I was preached that by my father, who was a coach, like all the time. It's about the team. It's not about you. You know, you do what you can to help the team, whatever role you're getting. That's not what these kids are getting or most of them are getting from their families and things coming up now. It's now it's, he's not playing you enough. You know, you're not getting enough shots. Jimmy's getting too many shots. I don't know why he's playing Billy, you know, I mean, and so you're asking young kids now who are trying to develop their own attitude to listen to all this BS and still come with the team oriented attitude and accept roles and everything else, it doesn't happen. And I think that's one of the big reasons that the number of transfers in college are up the way they are. Even the number of transfers in high school, for God's sakes. I mean, how many of these guys do you see that go to three and four different high schools? And it's all about trying to build their reputation and their ranking and all of that. And I'm not saying that's wrong. I mean, we're all trying to make it in our profession or whatever. But I think the team-oriented, play-a-role type of thing has been uh, disappearing or, or at least is on the decline pretty rapidly. And so I'm not sure I could get guys to do it now. I'm just being honest. Yeah. Coach, moving from control and roles and things like that to more tactical conversation about, you know, especially last year, you know, in the middle of you know space and pace and five out offense and all this stuff, you start to build an offense around a post player, a young post player, Zion Williamson and all that. And just your thoughts on the modern post game and, you know, like I said, within the space and pace philosophy, but then now you're going to try to build around a great post player, someone that can really dominate at the block and your thoughts on doing that. This one's really different by level, I think. You know, when I watch college games, the post game is still an integral part of what's going on offensively in college basketball. And it certainly is in international basketball. You know, people who may not get a chance to watch a lot of international basketball, but maybe saw the Olympics, you can see that they will play through the post a lot. In the NBA, very rare. I mean, even with Zion. We had him handle the ball and attack from there. I mean, we really didn't post him a whole lot, even though he's effective down there. We did throw him the ball down there some, but not as much as you would think. I mean, unless it's, you know, Jokic or Joel Embiid, you know, the ball's just not going into the post very much. 
the numbers will sort of back that up, that it's not an effective play. Now, I do think what's extremely effective, and I didn't do it enough this past year, Golden State does a lot of it, some other teams, which I really like, is throwing the ball into the post and using that guy as a trigger man down there as a passer and playing out of that. I I think it's really tough to defend post splits and cuts with the ball down there. It really changes your position defensively. Like, you know, we all come out and do the shell drill every day and, and right. And it's vision on man and ball. And if you really just go out on a court and do it, it's much, much easier when the ball's out there in front of you. That's an easy thing to do. You put the ball down behind you in the post, it becomes a lot more difficult. And I think Steve Kerr has done a great job of exploiting that in Golden State with guys who weren't necessarily great low post scorers, Draymond Green, Andrew Bogut, when he had him, you know, throw it down in there and use those guys as a trigger. I should have done more of that, to be quite honest. And I think it's a very, very effective thing. I do think it's just, You know, it's a little easier to crowd the floor against guys if you want the guy as a primary scorer than it is with the ball out front. And I think it has made it tough for people to score down there. And so the game has changed dramatically at the NBA level. But at the college level, I see really good post play, both for scorers, but also for what I'm talking about is people playing through the post and getting cuts and things like that. Now, to do that, that post guy's got to be skilled. He's got to be able to pass the ball. He doesn't necessarily have to be able to score the ball. I mean, I think that's one thing, you know, again, going back to Draymond Green, Andrew Bogut. Now, when Bogut first came in the league, he could score down there. But by the time he was with those really good Warriors teams, he wasn't a scorer, but he could really pass down there. So I think if you've got a guy in high school or college who can catch and pass, I think you can develop a lot around those guys in the post. I don't think you necessarily need to be focused on them as scorers. You know, and the other thing is this, right? You mentioned it earlier, Dan, like there's so much five out stuff now in the NBA. Well, one of the things that we have run into with our five men playing on top, if he's not a shooter, his guy can just stand back in the lane and you can really get up and deny and take away all the cuts and things like that. So even if the guy's a good passer, it happened to us some when I was in Detroit with Andre Drummond, who's a good ball handler and passer, but nobody would guard him out top. And so his ability as a passer was diminished. But if you put those guys who can handle and pass in the low post, well, the guy can't just stand back under the rim at that point. And so you can create passing angles. So I think playing through the post can be very, very effective still. I think the reason you don't see it as much is the preoccupation with the three-point shot, right? And so guys are only interested in posting people who are either really, really good down there, like I said, in beat or Jokic, and not only can they score, but they draw double teams that end up might creating threes. But I think what people miss in sort of the three-point preoccupation, and, and I've been in the NBA, was an early advocate of shooting more and more threes. But I think what people miss is it's still much more effective, you know, just by the numbers. Layups are the most effective thing you can get other than free throws. And the free throws you're going to get the closer to the basket you are usually. Sure. So I think your offensive attack first has to center on how are we going to get the ball to the basket? and get free throws and layups in the three coming after that. So I think playing through the post and being able to utilize cuts and things like that, tremendously effective and really, really effective against zones too. Because if the ball gets into the heart of the defense against the zone, as all zone coaches know, I mean, and your defense has to collapse now, it's a lot more difficult than if the ball stays out on the perimeter. So I don't think we should undersell the importance of post play. I think college coaches, certainly high school coaches, international coaches all understand that. But I think even in the NBA, there's a way to very effectively use post players. Coach, does how you use the post or maybe using the post more as a scoring position change when it's a late game situation? Well, it's hard, first of all, to get the ball there rather than just get a score of the ball on the perimeter. When we were in Detroit, I remember one of my video guys, we had him in the off season, break down 
every turnover we'd have over 82 games. You know, how did it take place? And post play is a huge cause of turnovers. Both throwing the ball into the post is a high turnover play at every level, or that guy trying to make a play out of the post. And that's sort of the conundrum, I think, is it can be really effective down there, but it's a high turnover play. And, and so late in the game, defensive pressure is up. Referees team to take a little bit of a step back. And so trying now to get the ball down in there even becomes tougher, more of a turnover play down there. So I think that's a big thing to consider late in the game. And then, you know, the second thing is, and this would be on an individual basis, but a lot of those big guys who are really good post players are not necessarily really good free throw shooters. And so to this day, you know, if Shaq and I were to sit here on a podcast, we would argue about this because 2005, you know, we lose in the conference finals in game seven at home to Detroit. And, you know, Shaq's complaint was we didn't go to him down the stretch. And it's true. I didn't. And he's, it's true that he's a great, great player, thought he should have been the MVP but I think it's tough to go to a non-free throw shooter at any position on the floor, you know, late in the game. And so that's another consideration. But the turnover is a big part of it, especially if everybody sort of knows, like, that's our best player. We're going there late in the game and the defense loads up. That's tough to do. Coach, just to follow up and kind of doing some research, I didn't watch all 82 games or 72 games this year, but I think hearing you talk about the turnovers and Again, correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, was that why then some late games you would have Zion dribble into the post? And then when you did get Zion into the post, how are you looking to maybe space around him? And what were you expecting from him in terms of were you looking like just trying he can get to the rim and like you said, get the fouls? Or are you looking more they're going to send help and let's try to then play out of the kick out or the rotations? Those are really good questions, Pat. So we had him dribble the ball into the post is how he got most of his post-ups this year because it's just a lot easier. I mean, he's a great yeah. ball handler. Nobody that can play him in the post can apply any kind of meaningful pressure to him getting down the floor. And so he could get the ball down there on his own. We didn't have to enter it. We weren't very good at entering to the post. And quite honestly, this year, our practice time and stuff was very, very limited. So we weren't going to have a lot of time on working to get it. And so rightly or wrongly, we just sort of gave into that. I did and just said, screw it. Like we're struggling to get the ball down there. I know we can get it there if Zion just dribbles it down there. Let's do that. You know, what we did, our five man was not a shooter. So I think you've really got two choices there. You, You basically start him in the slot and dive him against any kind of dig or double team. We just put our five men down on the baseline outside of the hash mark down there. Most people call it the dunker spot. Keep his guy from being in the lane, but allow him to go to the rim. And then we space the other three guys basically right at the midline up top, the weak side slot, the weak side corner. And as Zion would bring the ball into the lane and we would move toward Zion making the angle of recovery a little tougher, but we did definitely want to look for cutting opportunities against people overhelping, going down, losing vision, you know, cut behind people, especially for guys. We didn't have a a great shooting team. I mean, we were 27th or 28th in three point percentage. And so we needed to get some cuts and things like that. Didn't change our spacing, but again, individually, some guys you want to cut other guys, you know, are just better shooters and maybe not great cutters. And so you can play out of the same spacing and individualize what you want from there. But Zion was able to make plays He's a really good passer, really willing passer. Yeah. We did a lot of just having dribbled down into there with the cuts coach. Was there certain spots you were looking to put maybe the cutter player? How would it work with the man in the dunker and Zion going middle And then all three players are on one side in terms of where, from what spots to cut. Well, throw Zion goes middle. The guy in the dunker spots basically work in the baseline down behind the basket. And the best cutting spot, I mean, you can cut from any of the spots depending on your defense, but the best cutting spot and the best angle on the cut is from the weak side slot because you're cutting straight line to the rim, which to me, a couple things, a pass doesn't have to be perfect because I'm coming right towards you. It's a little easier for me Mm -hmm. to make the catch and you're going directly 
at the rim. So that was a cut that we wanted a lot. Cutting to me is a, and I'm just saying for me, and I think we all have certain things that we teach better than others. I find for myself that cutting has been a hard thing to teach. I've encouraged it, encouraged it more this year than I ever have before, but have a hard time really teaching it. There's some situations I think it's easy. You know, if I'm dribbling at you for a dribble handoff and your guy's cheating and you back cut. But if you're just on the weak side, reading when to cut, when not to cut to create space, all of that, I've had trouble, to be honest, teaching that really, really well. And what I have found is there's certain guys who just have great instincts on cutting and you sort of free them up. When I was in Orlando, Matt Barnes is one of the best cutters I've ever been around. Before that in Miami, Eddie Jones was just a fantastic cutter. When I was in Detroit, we had Avery Bradley, just a great cutter. And then we had a 19-year-old rookie point guard in New Orleans, Kyra Lewis, who, you know, is not the guy you would normally think would be a cutter. First of all, most point guards are not great cutters. Second of all, guys who are small and frail are not usually the guys you want cutting and attacking the rim. They usually stay on the perimeter, but he was a tremendous cutter with great, great instincts. And probably he and Josh Hart probably led our team in cutting baskets on the year. He just, Kyra had a really good knack for cutting. So that's an area that I think is really important that I really wish I could do a better job teaching than I did throughout my career. Coach, just to follow up on the cutting stuff, because it is interesting. So then with a guy who is a great cutter, say Josh Hart or whoever is on your team, and the ball is in the post, then would you prefer just saying, hey, this guy's always cutting, no matter if he's in the corner, if he's at the slot, at the top, or did you still want it to be just a read from the entire team? You know, that's an interesting question, Dan. Look, when I was in Orlando and we did still post up some with Dwight Howard. So if Dwight was posted, we had four shooters on the floor. Everybody could shoot the ball. So we dictated where we were going to cut from because everybody could shoot the ball. So we would cut from that weak side slot. That would always be the cutter. Now, if we were playing in lineups and we didn't do much of it in Orlando because all those guys could shoot, at times we would be out there with three shooters and one guy who wasn't a great shooter, then we would designate him as a cutter from wherever he was and keep three guys spotted up. I really don't like four guys spotted up on the perimeter. I I think the rotations are too short for the defense. So we did always Mm -hmm. want somebody getting to the basket and the baseline and the offensive glass. So I think you can do that either way. And again, it depends on the ability of your players. I mean, there's some guys who are just not good finishers either. So you don't really want them cutting and they can shoot the ball. But I mean, you go back to when Tim Duncan was in San Antonio posting up, Tony Parker more often than not was the guy who ended up cutting and then being in the dunker spot on the baseline because everybody else on the floor could shoot the ball better than Tony could. And so he would be down there on baseline. And so you've got to have basic spacing rules. But in terms of who goes where, I think you really do have to do it individually by the talent's of your players. It's easier when you post non-centers because then usually your center will be the guy that ends up down on the baseline. You can cut. Uh, One of the most effective things, I remember when Jamal Mashburn, we had had him in Miami, but when he was in Charlotte and they posted him as a three-man and neither their four nor their five were stretch bigs and they would double flood is what we called it. They'd have a guy on the baseline looking to come under the basket and a guy up in the slot or at the weak side elbow coming down. And now if you went to double or to dig, you know, they're either two on one against the other defender there. If you pull in your weak side perimeter to help on Mm -hmm. that guy cutting from the elbow, then the weak side three was wide open. So I think being really defined in your spacing on post-ups and on pick and rolls for that matter is really, really important. But I think the way you do it has got to be determined by the talents of the people that you have. I I don't think it can just be something on a piece of paper and then you're trying to fit guys into it. I I don't think that'll work. I mean, that's just basically me offensively anyway. I I mean, I defense doesn't change a whole lot. It will some, but offensively, I've never looked at it, at least in the NBA. I've never been. I know some guys in college are successful with it, but 
in the NBA, I've never been a guy, this is my system and we're going to fit everybody into it. I mean, I think you've got to develop around who you have. Coach, we'd like to transition now into a fun segment that we call start, sub, or sit, kind of a lightning round type of situation where we're going to give you three different topics. You'll start one, you'll sub one, and then you'll sit one. And then we can have a little discussion from there about it. So we've got a few of them for you here. And to start, we want to give you a scenario saying that maybe you're going to go back to college or maybe high school and you're going to put in an offense that is a non-pick and roll centered offense. And so these are three kind of old school type offenses that you could choose from. So start, sub, or sit, the flex offense, the five out motion, pass and cut, screen away, or the UCLA high post offense. I'll start with the flex. Okay. Probably because it's the one I've taught the most. I mean, I ran it, my first head coaching job as a division three coach in Vermont. We ran it. I had run it as a player in college. It's an important thing. And not that you can't try other things. And I certainly have done that throughout my career, but you've got to understand what you're teaching. I think sometimes, you know, one of the mistakes you make in coaching is you look at what other people are doing, you really, really like it, and you jump into trying to run it before you have an extensive enough knowledge of sort of the ins and outs and and what to do with it. And I've made that mistake in the past with motion offense, which is why I will sit that one and sub. What was the uh, other one? UCLA, high post offense. Look, I've run out of the UCLA. We did it at some set plays this year, not a lot, but we did run some after timeout stuff out of the UCLA. I, there's a lot you can do with it. I, I love, you know, when Jerry Sloan was in uh, Utah, they ran that stuff for years in addition to the Stockton Malone pick and rolls. But as Stockton and Malone went out, Jerry went to more and more of just his UCLA stuff. And it's really, really hard to guard. So I, I would sub that one in and I would put the motion offense on the bench. Coach, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the flex. And and like you said, I mean, everyone knows it, but if you haven't taught it before, what do you think is the importance of when you're going to run the flex, you got to do maybe these things well, or pay attention to these things to make it be effective. You've got to be able to screen. I mean, you know, if you're not going to screen people, you've got to be able to recognize and counter against what a lot of people do, which is switch, try to switch everything down there. And you've got to be really, really good on all of those things on the flex. I also think that the reason I got away from the flex, quite honestly, is, you know, you get to a point where there's a big difference on your own team and the level of skill of your players. To me, the flex is a, I would call it an equal opportunity offense, right? And I think it's great because the ball moves and everything else and there's good cutting and it's fun to play and all of that. But I got to a point where I wanted the ball in certain guys' hands more than in other people's hands. You know, I didn't want it to just run through. I think your the flex is, is good for a team where the abilities are fairly equal. I think you've got to have pretty good across the board skill and decision making, which I think is a weakness of it. But if you have those kind of guys, I think it's good. I also think it's a good offense for teams that really aren't going to have, you know, people who can break you down off the dribble and need to create your shots in different ways. You know, everybody's got to be able to pass, cut, screen and read and react to switching defenses. You know, if you make that guard-to-guard pass and you get automatic with that and turn it over going that way, it's a layup the other way. And so, you know, guys have got to make good decisions on that stuff. Coach, my quick follow-up for you on this was your sit and the motion. Is it more because of the difficulty for kids to pick up all the reads and the cuts and the actions, or is it from a coaching side, it's a lot to teach to try to make all these reads? I mean, you know, what would be your hesitancy of running that offense? I have tried to run that offense, not in the NBA, but when I was in college and I just didn't teach it as well as I taught other stuff. I just didn't. And that's when I've made mistakes in coaching. I mean, I didn't, 
have the understanding or didn't teach it as well as I did other things. Just never really got comfortable with it. And again, I got to the point in my coaching career where I wanted the ball in certain guys' hands more and more to make the plays and create offense. And I felt like over time, we were able to do a better job of taking care of the ball, not turning it over as much because we weren't allowing guys who weren't as good at decision makers, weren't as good at passers and things like that to have their ball in their hand as much to make those decisions. You know, I, I remember one of the stories that has stuck with me throughout my coaching career when my brother first broke in with the New York Knicks as an assistant. He was both on the bench, but he was also going out and scouting opponents. And because he's you know, somebody so eager to learn all the time is what he would try to do when he had to scout somebody is he would get in early and see if on that afternoon he could watch a college practice somewhere before he went to the game at night. So he was scouting the Milwaukee Bucks or at least scouting in Milwaukee. And he went up to Wisconsin Green Bay when Dick Bennett was there to my way of thinking the best college coach that I've ever seen in my life. And he actually mm-hmm. took my job when I got fired at Wisconsin. It was the single greatest upgrade in coaching that has ever been made. But anyway, my brother was at his practice at Green Bay and Jeff had done his studying and things and, you know, realized that Green Bay every year was top five, top 10 in the nation and fewest turnovers. And Jeff asked him, coach, you know, what do you do that you do such a great job and not turning the ball over? And he said, Jeff, that's simple. Don't play the guys who turn it over. So I don't totally believe in that. And I don't want to get into this whole thing on turnovers right now. But the part I do agree with is you can't just let everybody handle the ball and do things they're not capable of doing and then be frustrated that your team's turning the ball over. Well, your team's turning the ball over because you're giving the guys who are not great decision makers and not great passers a chance to make decisions and make passes. So, you know, what do you think is going to happen? To that point, if you try to hyper-focus your players' roles in the offense, could it be better than basically ways to avoid them having the ball in their hands? But then does the offense maybe become too predictable? Hey, listen, I love motion offense now, Pat. I mean, I've seen teams (laughs) who run it great. I've tried to coach against it and found it very hard to defend because it was a read and react type thing. So I love motion offense. I just didn't think I could teach it. To me, though, finding a happy medium in terms of roles is important. And again, I'll go back to Dick Bennett. I coached against him when I was at Wisconsin, both as an assistant and as a head coach, and he ran the you know, the blocker mover motion offense. And so he knew there, you know, on each side of the floor, there was going to be a blocker and that guy was going to be the screener. And then the other guys are moving off of him. And I think that defined it a little bit more, right? We're not going to have any confusion. Am I screening for you or are you screening for me? Right? Yeah. We didn't have that. Bobby Knight, when he was at Indiana, that was always the inside guy screening for the guy on the outside. So If I had a guy in the corner, I'd be screening down for him. If I were on the block saying the ball got reversed and I'd be stepping up to set a back screen. I do think, yeah, having those kind of things defined and being able to read off of that is really, really helpful. Now, you know, it creates other problems in college. I always used to laugh, but not really. I would always say, and and there's no one, I don't think anywhere other than maybe his son, Tony at Virginia, who respects Dick Bennett more than I do as a coach. But I always wondered, like, how the hell do you recruit somebody to be a blocker? Like, you know, it's hard enough to recruit. You got like, son, here's the role I perceive for you. You know, you're going to be a screener for four years here. You know, Dick must have been a hell of a recruiter to get people into that role. But, but no, I do think defining roles within the motion is really, really good. And again, I don't think there's anything tougher to defend than anything that that's a read and react type of thing. I mean, I think you saw it this year, every interview with Mike Budenholzer in the NBA finals, right? They struggled early on to score in the series with Phoenix. And what he kept saying all the time is we've got to play more random. He kept saying that every interview, we've got to play more random, got to play more random, got to play more random. Well, he's not talking about playing like a pickup game. He's talking about being more unpredictable and playing on concepts more than on set plays. And I think all of us know 
that particularly against the best teams, you're going to have to be able to play that way. Because other than maybe after a timeout where they don't know what's coming, if you're going to come down and call a play against a really good team who is well-coached, well-prepared, I mean, you're going to have trouble. And, and so you've got to have, whether you want to call it motion offense or read and react or playing out of anything you want, you're going to have to be able to do that. And I think that's what Mike Budenholzer was saying, you know, in the NBA finals, um, they knew what their concepts and their spacing were. So when he was saying, I wouldn't use the term random because to me, that sounds like, yeah, everybody just sort of do what you want. But I knew what Mike meant and that's not what he meant. And Mike's a great, great coach. And he understood they just had to play out of concepts and react to what the Phoenix Suns did defensively. And I think that's important. And I think that people who run what I would call more classic motion offense, that's what they're great at teaching, you know, is read and react to the defense and play according to people's skills. I mean, where you see it, to me, another great example is you watch the Golden State Warriors and watch how they play after Steph Curry gives the ball up. So he comes down, he might run pick and roll. He might not, but he'll throw the ball back to the top. Boom, he's in motion. And now everybody is looking to screen for Steph Curry, you know? And so he's able to come off screens, very much motion offense type stuff. But yet the good part to me is what I'm talking about is you got to play to your best player. They're doing both. They're running motion offense, but they're definitely feature in their best player. He's the hardest guy to guard in the NBA. I think all the guards would tell you that. And it's not because of what he can do with the ball, because there's a lot of guys in the NBA that are great with the ball. James Harden, Kyrie Irving, Kevin Durant's impossible to guard. Steph Curry's good in that situation too. But when you can also play off the ball, really hard to guard. And as you guys know, and college does a better job of teaching, but when you see it in the NBA, it's hard to guard is people who move without the basketball. That's a lot harder to guard than the guys with the ball. And you combine Steph being able to do both. It's a nightmare for coaches that are opposing him and for, you know, defenders that have to guard him. All right, coach, our next start sub sit for you is attacking a side ice defense on the ball screen. So start, sub, or sit, flipping the screen and having the guard snake to the middle, popping the big man to play a second side action, or popping the big man to have the guard come off a handoff with him. Wow. I mean, those are all good. That, that one's going <laughs> to be tough because we do all of those. So I'm not sure I can give you a, uh, a start, sub, or sit. I, I guess, so I'm not bailing on the game. I will... Uh, <laughs> sit popping the big back and, and swing into a second side action because I'm generally playing to that pick and roll because those are the two guys I want involved. So I don't take them out. Yeah. I think that I will start popping the big back and go into the handoff action. And the reason is, is because that gets my guard into the middle of the floor. The other thing is, is, and there are some teams in the NBA that do a great job of this, San Antonio being one, is you're on the guard and you're pushing that thing down to the baseline, as you called it, an ice. You know, they're pushing it down to the baseline. Throw it back to the big, especially if that big can shoot and your big has to recover. The guard's on the wrong side now. He's forcing that ball to the baseline. So you've got that immediate back cut. And then... When I start my back cut and that guard takes the back cut away, now I've got the angle to come off for the handoff rather than just throwing it with the guard on the top side, the defending guard on the top side, just throwing it to the big and trying to run off. I'm setting it up with that back cut and coming off to turn the corner. And now I can play out of that. So that will be my start. But I like flipping the screen. We did it a lot. I think the thing that you have to be careful of. We never wanted to flip the screen if it was close to the sideline over there. You know, there are some teams, Steve Clifford has done it since he's been in Charlotte. Anytime the corner is empty and you flip the screen on that side of the floor with an empty corner, they're going to blitz. They're going to trap that pick and roll. And so that's okay. I don't mind going against the blitz, but not if you don't have any room over there. And so that would be my uh, sub and, and mainly because of the 
caveat of I don't like it in every situation. But the reality is I actually like all three of those options. You know, I mean, Boston, back when we played them, you know, they won the championship in 08, went to the finals in 10, and we went to the finals in nine. We used to play them. They would throw the ball back even to Kendrick Perkins, who was a total non-shooter. And their main action was throw it back, swing it. And then Kendrick Perkins would pin down and they would come yeah. off of that single. And so there's a lot of good action. And I think that, you know, it's possible to combine all of those things into what you do. And then what you're teaching is the spacing and the reading defense. And really a lot of what we were talking about, I mean, in any offense, your ability to read defense is, is essential. And so if you think that's out because of pick and rolls and things, you know, I mean, people would be wrong. You're still going to have to, you know, read what's going on and play, you know, get to the second option and things like that. When you flip the screen, what are you telling the guard maybe before and then after the screen to use it effectively? Well, I think like on any pick and roll, right? I think it all depends on who you are, but also on how you're being played, right? So if people are going to go under on that, you know, and we've set it out where we would like, depending on who you are. I mean, to me, anytime a guy goes under, our screener was going to offer a rescreen. We called it a twist. He was going to offer that if the guard went under. He had to pivot on his low foot there, you know, to get the angle to catch the guy back and you can come off, but also the option to shoot the ball versus the under to shoot the three. But if the guy went over the top, now you're attacking the big, as you said earlier, Pat, on a snake to the middle where yeah. you may even beat the big baseline, but we really want to attack that guy. Now, most people in that situation are going to be back on a pretty good drop, but if you can snake to the middle and get going to the rim and your big can roll out of there, you know, you can make the late lob and things like that. You know, those are pretty basic plays now in the NBA and, and NBA guards on pick and rolls are so, so good at making all of those that the idea is you just somehow, to me, what you're trying to do is force those guards to go over the top, you know? So that's why against the under, we're trying to flip the screen. I mean, if you have great shooters, like you're not going under on Steph Curry, but for the most part, I think you want to take away the under the best you can. And then I think guys pretty much know what the plays are that they're looking for. Coach, we got one more start subset for you. So this will be one more where, uh, let's say you're going back to another level and you're not going to be playing man-to-man defense. You're going to stick with the zone defense for your main defense for the year. So start subset, 1-3-1 one, one zone, 2-3 zone, or a 3-2 zone. I'll sit the 3-2 zone. But again, that's probably just, and I'm thinking a conventional 3-2 where the back guys are having to cover the corners. And I'm going to do that because now one of my guards, whoever's playing it up in the thing is going to have to sink on the weak side and be my weak side rebounder on one side of the floor. And, And I don't like that. And I also, because I've always had, or at least in the time in the NBA, but really even in college, I mean, I always had big guys, like true bigs, and I don't really want them going to the corner if if they have to. So I'm going to sit the 3-2. I'll start the 1-3-1. I'll give you two reasons again. And the first one I've used several times, I've coached that more. I played it a lot in college. I'm more familiar with it, I think. So I do a better job teaching it. But the other thing is, is I've just seen very few different approaches to the one, three, one. I mean, I pretty much know if I go one, three, one, what I'm going to see from the offense, you know, they're going to go two guys out front, two guys in the corners and a guy inside. And so I'm not going to see a lot of different stuff. Now, when I was in college, we actually attacked the one, three, one differently. We put our two guys, big guys on the blocks. We put our three man at the nail and played two guards out front. So that back guy who used to go in corner to corner, there's nobody in our idea. And we, we also ran some set plays was we're just going to throw something at you that you haven't seen every day. And we're going to try to overpower you inside. And it was pretty effective, but for the most part, you know what you're going to see on the one, three, one. I think it allows you your best chance of trapping out of it 
or not. I think you can put good pressure on. I think it's a little bit easier to me anyway, to keep the offense on the perimeter more. Again, it maybe wouldn't be if people ran two guys into the heart of the zone, you know, like you do against two, three or something where you put one guy down in the dunker and another guy coming to the high post or mid post, but you just don't see that much against one, three, one. And so it's pretty easy. I think to at least keep teams playing on the perimeter. So yeah, that's the way I'd go. I'd go one, three, one, I'd sub to two, three and try to be really compact and I'd sit the three, two, but again, it's all personnel based too. So they used to play a little three, two zone, not a lot, but a little bit in Indiana when Ron Artest, he was at the time now meta world peace, but when he was there and he'd play the top and then he would drop, we used to call it a monster zone. So it would really become a 2-3, he'd play at the top and then drop. That I liked a little bit, you know. But we don't see still a lot of zone in the NBA. I think it's pretty effective. I've wondered, my brother and I have wondered to each other, you know, what would happen if somebody would uh, commit to it, say, at the NBA level, like Jim Beheim does at the college level, and just say, we're going to play it 48 minutes. There's a guy here in Orlando at Rollins College who's been here like 40 years, Tom Klusman. And a few years back, Tom went, to play an all zone and he plays all the zones we were just talking about, but he plays all zone. He doesn't play any man to man. So he's become a big advocate of the zone. And when I was here in Orlando, I remember going to lunch with him one day and he, you know, he's saying, I don't understand why you guys don't play more zone. And as we got talking, he goes, and when you do play zone, you know, as soon as somebody hits a three, you're out of the zone, but they can hit three straight threes against your man-to-man and you don't get out of the man-to-man. Like what's going on? And I said, well, I think that's an honest case. It it comes down to what you believe in. And so I believe in man-to-man defense. And so when we're not being effective, my thing is we need to do it better or harder, right? Or maybe make some adjustment. I don't really believe in the zone. I'll throw it out there. And when it doesn't work, I'm getting out of it because I didn't believe in it to begin with, whereas Tom Klusman totally believes in it. And so if it doesn't go in, yeah, he might switch zones and give you a different look, but he's probably most of the time going to do what I do with man-to-man. We need to play it better. We need to play it harder. We got to close out harder. We got to do all of that. You know, so we all have stuff that we'll try, but then we've got a core of things that we really believe in. That's offensively and defensively. And we're going to stick with those things. I think most coaches are like that. Coach, my follow-up is actually uh, the offense you used to attack the one three one. Could you just kind of expand a, a little bit on it? Was the goal basically then we're just trying to get the ball inside and then just kind of pound them inside with uh, your alignment like that? Or what was your thinking behind it? Okay, well, the first thing is, right, I mean, a conventional one three one. you've got your wings out wide and high, right? And, and basically, what are they doing on the strong side of the floor? What's that wing doing? Is he's basically in line with the pass to the corner, right? Well, there's nobody in the corner. Yeah. So now what are you going to do with that guy? Like, is he going to come up and play the ball? Is he going to drop back in front of the post? You know, what's he doing? Your back man in a conventional one three one is going corner to corner. And a lot of teams are playing a small guy back there. They're not playing their center back there, right? So what's he going to do? There's nowhere to run to. He's a post defender now. So basically what we're trying to do is, number one, give you something that you don't see. We were trying to do, give you something you don't see very often. Number two, do something that your defense isn't really set up to defend. And just like you do in man-to-man, we're trying to mismatch you a little bit. We're trying to mismatch you in the back. And then that guy in the middle at the nail was our best player and he could really go anywhere. So starting at the nail, like, because what a lot of teams would do, we'd come down in that set and they'd say, okay, they would come up with their wing if they knew what we were doing, play the ball, drop the point guy back in front of our guy at the nail and drop Mm -hmm. the center back in front of our guy in the post, right? So we would give that guy in the middle now could go on the move. You know, he could pop out up top. We could swing the ball, but we were going to try to pound you inside and we were going to totally distort your zone. I mean, you really couldn't play. You could say you were in a one, three, one, but you really weren't. I mean, you, you weren't going to play no. one, three, one against that set. Now you got to have guys on the block who can play. And we did that. We could throw the ball inside and, 
we could throw the ball diagonal and the whole thing. I mean, it, it was, to be honest, we didn't move a lot out of it. I mean, we said that guy at the nail could go where he wanted, but he basically played the nail and would occasionally pop out. And we were just moving the ball and trying to go inside and swinging the ball and getting into some one-on-one yeah. situations. I mean, it was pretty good. We also back screened the, the zone quite a bit, the one, three, one on the swing and, and got some lobs. And I think in general, I mean, I, I think my teams were always at every level, pretty good against zones. I mean, number one, I think, whereas a lot of people are afraid of zones, I, I never really was. I mean, and this isn't really true. Certainly not if you're talking the great zone coaches like Beheim, but I always felt like told my teams is, listen, they're in zone for a reason here. And the reason is they know damn well they can't guard you. And so they're going zone. And so if they can't guard you man-to-man, they can't guard you zone. And and then the other thing is, and this goes back to the mismatch part of it. I, I remember, you know, we're probably starting to get into a generation of coaches now that hasn't seen all of the Don Meyer tapes. But certainly in my generation of coaches, there was a guy, Don Meyer, who was at Lipscomb University for a long time. And then went up somewhere in uh, North Dakota and had really good programs. He had tapes, coaching tapes out on literally, I don't know, he had 50 some of them out. I mean, there's not a topic in coaching he didn't hit on. But I remember on the zone offense one, what really struck me, zone offense and zone defense is, I mean, in man-to-man, you get to choose who you're going to guard, but not where you're going to guard. Like I can take you down into the post or do whatever. In zone, you're going to choose where you're going to guard, but not who you're going to guard. And so I always like to try to invert against the zone a lot. Like when I was in Miami, we didn't see a lot of zone there, but we would always put weight on the baseline against the zone. And so if you get him the ball down there, he's always being guarded by a forward. Hell, guards couldn't even guard Dwayne Wade. And now you're asking bigger guys to keep him out of the paint when he catches the ball there, one dribble from the rim. I mean, they couldn't do it, you know? And so you're inverting responsibilities and things like that. And that's the same idea in the one, three, one for us. You put a guard in the back, we're going to make him guard a big guy. You know, we're not going to let him guard the guard, you know, shooters in the corner. And so I think that has been a big part of what I've tried to do against zone. Coach, you're off the start, sub, sit hot seat. That was a lot of fun. Thanks for going through those scenarios with us. We got one more closing question for you, but before we do, thank you very much for making time for us this morning. This has been a lot of fun for us. We appreciate having you. Oh, it's been great to be here. Any chance you get to uh, talk basketball with guys who are interested and curious and it's always fun. Thank you. Appreciate that. Our closing question for you, you've had a long, great career, a number of different stops and different levels. Wondering what the best investment in your coaching career has been? Well, I don't know if this would go straight to X's and O's, but it's the best investment I've ever made and the best advice I could give somebody. I married a great woman who's been an unbelievable partner in this whole thing. And I think that anybody who's been in coaching very long, and I don't care what level, and has gotten married or has a, you know, longtime partner or anything like that understands how important that is because this is a tough, tough profession in a lot of ways. I mean, first of all, the time you spend and when you spend that time, you know, I mean, like, so, you know, if you're a high school coach, you're giving up every Friday night at the very least. If you're a college coach, giving up every Saturday night. I mean, when's the fun come? When did you know, if your wife's working and stuff like, when are you doing things? And then there's sort of the obsession we all have with what we're doing in coaching. I mean, it's not really a job that very many of us are very good at just sort of leaving in the gym and coming home. I mean, and I'm not talking about people being in a bad mood, but, you know, I'm sure just talking to you guys on here, you'll be sitting at home and an idea will come in your head and you're all of a sudden diagramming a play or something, you know, like (laughs) you're never away from it and your partners are never away from it. And again, this is any level, there's the criticism that goes with it, whether it's high school where it mainly come from the parents or college and the NBA where it's coming from, you know, the media and everything else. And I think coaches develop 
pretty thick skin. We just know it's part of the job. That's the way it's going to be. But I also think we all know it's easier to handle criticism of ourselves than it is when you hear criticism of our loved ones, right? And that's what our partners go through all the time, right? Is they're hearing, you know, the person that they love getting criticized and they have to be able to deal with all that. The stress of being the partner of a coach is credible. And the only way you're going to be able to do the job, I mean, obviously you need to do some things better as a coach too, but you know, it's going to be hard to be successful and have a partner if that partner's not pretty special in understanding everything that goes with it. And I do think it's important. Um, I just heard a guy speak at the upstate New York Basketball Hall of Fame induction, and he was talking about you know, dating his, who's now his wife and saying, you know, his first date, he took her to a high school basketball game on a Friday night. You know, he was a college coach and he was recruiting and he, he said, he always figured out if you're going to get involved with me, you better know what it is. And this is how we're going to spend. And I think that's true. And, and I think that you're going to have to find the right person and the time you invest in that relationship and the time you invest in trying to help your partner go through the challenges of coaching. I think a lot of times we just think it's us and our partner needs to help us through the challenges of coaching. To me, it's much more challenging what they're going through. I mean, and I know that right from, I remember, you know, if I would sit at a game like my dad was coaching after I was already in coaching and the stuff you hear around you and stuff, whether it's parents or other people, you know, you just, it's hard. Like that's a lot of, when you're down there, like, I mean, it's part of it. Like you don't worry about it when you're coaching. I mean, it's a, it's a hard thing. And I think that, so I would say find the right person, but also you got to really invest in that and understand what they're going through. Because if you don't have that kind of balance, I don't think you can be successful. So that's probably way off what you were looking for as an answer no, that's perfect. in terms of the, uh, best investment, but I think it's the most important one. And and then you've got to have a close basketball friend. Like I know my brother would always say in the NBA, where obviously you can hire a lot of people, you got to have somebody on that staff has got to be a a friend, not just a another coach, but a friend, somebody who understands what it's like, what you're going through, and is also just a friend. And I think that we need coaching friends. I mean, we have colleagues and we have people we can learn from and talk to, but I do think everybody needs a coaching friend because it's a weird profession. And that's why I was talking about my wife too. It's a weird profession. Nobody understands what it is for us and for our partners. You got to have people to talk to because, and it's got to be other people who do this because no one else can understand. I mean, I remember my wife, you know, we're just starting our family and we were down in Miami and I remember one of our friends saying to her, like, what does Stan do all day? Like all they saw was the games. I think they just thought like we showed up to the game, what's it do the rest of the time? But other coaches know like, okay, the hours you put in and what's going on and other coaches, partners know that. You can talk to a lot of people about a lot of things and you certainly need people outside of coaching, but you better have people inside of coaching who have an idea of what the hell you and your partner are going through. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode with Coach Stan Van Gundy. Please visit slappingglass.com for more information on videos, the free newsletter, and the new monthly option for Slapping Glass Plus. Have a great week coaching, and we'll see you next time on Slapping Glass. Slapping Glass.